toddler's ABCs. Athletics beyond coronavirus. Hillel Cutler's ABCs. Athletics beyond coronavirus. Hillel Ascribe Welcome to Hillel Cutler's ABC's Athletics Beyond Coronavirus. I'm Hillel Cutler, a veteran journalist who specializes in both healthcare and sports. Sometimes I write about healthcare within sports, like medical providers who work at ski resorts or those tending to athletes at the Olympics. In this era of the coronavirus and the lockdown is helping to save our lives by limiting the spread of the disease, I think often of what the people who work in sports are experiencing at a time that they would normally be on the field, the court, or the rink. I think of the athletes, the coaches, the broadcasters, the executives, the game day staff, and I'm interested in how fans are faring now. On this podcast, I interview them about the very real here and now, and also about the day after, when the lives that we prefer to live can resume, and when the sports we love return. I welcome your comments, including suggestions for interviews. Just email me at hk at hillelthescribecommunications.com. My guest today is Wayne Granger. He pitched in the major leagues for nine seasons and appeared in 451 games. Every one of those 451 games came in relief. He also pitched in two World Series for the St. Louis Cardinals in 1968 and the Cincinnati Reds in 1970. And we're speaking today because of what occurred exactly 50 years ago. On June 24, 1970, the Reds played the final game ever at their home stadium, Crosley Field. They had played in that ballpark for nearly 59 seasons, since 1912, and they'd actually played on that same plot of land on the corner of Finley Street and Western Avenue since 1884, when two earlier stadiums, League Park and then Palace of the Fans, occupied the site where Redland Field would be built in 1912, and Redland Field was later renamed Crosley Field because of the Reds' owner, Powell Crosley. And in total, that made almost 87 consecutive seasons that they played right on that spot. Uh, They were called the Red Legs and later the Reds. And in Crosley Field, they reached four World Series, won two of them. The first night game in Major League history was played on Crosley Field in 1935. Johnny Vandermeer, the Reds pitcher, pitched no hitter there in 1938. And that was halfway to what has never been done since it was never done before, which is pitched two no-hitters in consecutive starts. And then in 1944, a few years later, during World War II, with the manpower shortage, Joe Nuxhall pitched at the age of just 15. And then in 1969, another interesting oddity is that on consecutive days, there were no-hitters thrown in the field, one by the Reds' Jim Maloney, the next day by Don Wilson of the Astros. And on the June 24th day of 1970, the last game, the Reds beat the San Francisco Giants 5-4, to and Wayne Granger threw the very last pitch. Bobby Bonds hit a ground ball, Wayne fielded it, threw it to first baseman Lee May. That was it. So Wayne Granger, welcome to Hillel Cutler's ABC's Athletics Beyond Coronavirus. Thanks, Lyle. Well, for, first of all, I'm always interested in asking people how they are, because I know that you live in Florida, a state where the numbers the number of coronavirus cases has been 
increasing actually and I'm wondering what you are doing to stay healthy and out of harm's way well actually I'm pretty fortunate I don't even know anybody that's caught the virus I mean I hear about it on TV but none of my friends or acquaintances or anywhere I go has been a problem knock on wood but they, all I do anymore is going out is uh, go to the grocery store you know you gotta have your food and uh, don't go anywhere for entertainment because you know because of that reason there's a virus and then I play golf and when you're out in the wide open and you don't get we don't shake hands and just clap each other on the back anymore we stay apart mm -hmm. but, you know we get around in so I play golf and, and that's pretty much about it and what, what about seeing your family relatives and and the like. Oh, what are you allowed to do? What are you? Yeah, we we talk on the phone, you know, and and I know as far as visiting it, you know, we had to postpone some things. The wedding we were going to go to, and a hmm. couple other things. In fact, I was going to come up to Cincinnati uh, for the uh, Hall of Fame induction of Marty Brenneman, and and they had to call that off, obviously. So a lot of things were put on hold, and but we're getting through it just like everybody else is. Marty Brenneman, the great broadcaster for the Reds all those years. Oh, yeah. One of the best. Yeah. Now, you not only threw the last pitch in the history of Crosley Field, but you also got the win in the game because you entered in the eighth inning. The Reds were behind 4-3, to three, and then the bottom of the inning, Johnny Bench hit a home run, Lee May hit a home run, and suddenly you had the leadoff, Juan Marichal, and you retired the side of the ninth, got the win, and the game was over. Do, do, yeah. Reds, do Reds fans tend to remind you very often about that? Oh, yes. Yeah, in fact, I, I think about it a lot personally because it was such an exciting moment, such an historical moment. And uh, I can still picture, you know, how it all went down. It kind of brings tears to my eyes. We had a, you know, everybody knows after the game, we're going to go over to drop, to put the home plate into to Riverfront. Mm -hmm. And I... Uh, so anticipating the end of the game, you know, and, and I'm pitched, and I said, boy, i got to get these guys out because I want us to win if we're going to be going over there. So anyway, after that all happened, uh, and, you know, we're having our little interviews and congratulating you. And all of a sudden, the helicopter comes hovering over the stadium, hmm. drops down just over home plate with a grappling hook. They dig home plate up hook it to the grappling hook and fly it over the riverfront, put it in the ground, and boy, that brought tears to my eyes. That was really exciting. And I mean, it was a real friendly home. It felt like you were in your home, you were across, you know, you'd you know, play so many games there, and it's so intimate, you know, there's a crowd right on top of a small ballpark, and I, I think about it a lot, and the players we had, and, you know, just good friends. And the way it all went down was pretty, pretty sensational. Did that feeling of emotion that you had hit you in the days or weeks before that game, or did it only hit you the morning of that game? No, I mean, everybody was anticipating moving to the new stadium and knowing that it was going to be a bigger stadium and it was going to have artificial turf and everything was going to be different. And like I say, Crosby was just so intimate and so small. And, you know, the, how many years it baseball were played there you, you know you think about those things and it's all going to go away and I so you know you, you just get caught up in that situation it almost felt like a world series well, do you remember what was done before the game or after the game to mark the occasion uh, actually I did, other than the fact that they brought the helicopter and picked up on the project riverfront hmm. I really don't remember 
I'm looking at an article here that I got in my scrapbook about the game, and mm. I'm shaking hands with Bench, and they're picking up home plate. The groundkeepers are to get to the grappling hook, and the picture here of Bench coming out to congratulate me, and this goes the scoreboard, Lee May catching the ball. I'm getting tears just looking at this thing. <laughs> really, really. Did, so whatever happened to that last ball? Did Lee May keep it? You kept it? The whole oh, thing took golly. it? I think it. Oh, I think it went to the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. If I'm wrong, probably now it would be at the Hall of Fame in Cincinnati. I really don't know what happened to the ball. Hmm. I mean, that, that was really some collection of talent on the field that day. You had Johnny Bench behind the plate, Tony Perez, third base later, later he played first base. You had Pete Rose in right field, Sparky Anderson, the your manager the first for his first yeah. season. So that's that's three Hall of Famers right there, and Rose is is deserving of the Hall of Fame. So maybe four, yeah. and the Giants had right. Juan Marichal. These are all guys who started the game. Juan Marichal, Willie Mays, and Willie McCovey. It's a pretty good collection yeah. of talent. <laughs> that's quite a collection of talent right there. Yeah. 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 In fact, I think over the years the talent that Cincinnati had. At one time on the ball field, I, I wasn't there when Morgan was there. I had gotten traded away. But can you imagine that those guys that they had, like you say, Rose is deserving of the Hall of Fame. He, he's not in. But then you got all those those same guys that you mentioned all on the same team manual. You have to pay them for salary now. Yeah, that was quite a collection of talent. So what do you remember about the, the seasons? The I guess it was... One and a half seasons, right? You played as a as a member of the Reds in Crosley Field. What what was it that you that stick in your mind about the way the stadium looked, the the the, the locker rooms, the tunnels, the just sort of the feel of the place? Well, it, it was obviously was an old fashioned type park. You know, they were just starting to build the new ones that were accommodate two sports, you know, football and baseball, but and this one was strictly for baseball, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then the way the, the configuration of the outfield, they had a, a in right field, I believe, they had kind of a, a grass hill that went up about 10 feet short of the wall and went up to the wall. So if you weren't careful as an outfielder, you could trip running up that hill trying to catch a ball. And they, of course, it wasn't all the big stands in the outfield. They had a, some bleachers in right field, and left field, of course, it was just the wall and the scoreboard, and and everything was so close. You know, and all the people, the seats along the third and first base lines were pretty close, and it was just so intimate. And I, it just it, it just seemed like old-fashioned baseball rather than modern, up-to-date baseball in the way of you know the intimacy and the, the crowds being right on top of you, and I just. I don't know, it just, it's kind of fun going there. I feel like you're leaving your home and going to your home when you got to the ballpark. Hmm. Did, did you live nearby in that neighborhood, Wayne? I was living in Kentucky near the airport. Hmm. So how, how long a drive would that be to go to a game? Oh, gosh, it probably was 25 minutes, I'm just guessing. I don't know. We're going back 50 years. I don't really hmm. remember. Hmm. So are, are there specific games or big wins or... Big confrontations with a with a batter. That sort of big outs that you got that really you warm you remember kind of warmly from those years. Any any particular confrontations I remember? Is that what you were asking? Correct. Yes. Uh, huh. 
Well, I guess that one one day I pitched against the Giants. We had a doubleheader, and they brought me in with a ninth inning, two outs. Were, I mean, nobody out. We're ahead by one run, and I, they got first and third, and they brought me in, and I got ahead of line drive to to my left fielder was playing shallow, and I fortunately the guy on third, I forget who it was. Didn't tag up, so we got that guy out. The next guy hits a double play ball, mm-hmm. and we get out of the inning, and we win by one run. And then, and that was the first game of doubleheader. And then, the second game, I, they brought me in the eighth inning, and the game went 15 innings, and uh, we finally won in the 15th inning. So I had pitched eight innings that day. So I felt like I had pitched a nine-hit shutout, but that was sticks in my mind. And I can remember one time we opened the season playing the Dodgers, and Bobby Tolan. I believe Bobby let off and Rose hit second or vice versa. Anyway, that was the opening day and Drysdale was pitching against us. And if I remember correctly, like I say, we're talking about 50 years ago, they both hit home runs. And we were at 2 nothing, and the game ended up 2 nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was fixed in my mind. But, uh, and then, you know, watching the, all the great Reds that played there, like Maloney, he was... He didn't get the recognition of, you know, the Gibsons and some of the really great pitchers, but he was just as good. He had the best motion of a pitcher I ever saw. If I was a right-handed, you know, over-the-top strikeout pitcher, I would try to emulate Maloney. He had such a good pitching motion. Clay Carroll, he was my roommate for the three years I was there. We were good friends. We were both in a bullpen. We had good times together. Of course, watching Rose play ball, he was really something. I mean, he worked harder at it than anybody else. He, he, he didn't like this being said, but he really did, didn't have so much talent as a lot of the big stars. He just worked so darn hard. He made himself a great baseball player. Yeah, and then there's an awful lot of good memories in that town, yeah. Yeah, I mean, speaking of Rose, I mean, just a month or so after the last game at Crosley Field, the sort of the attention of the baseball world was on Cincinnati because the All-Star game was there, but it was at the new park and, you know, it's kind of the lasting, one of the lasting images of All-Star history was Pete Rose scoring the winning run on a, on a base hit to center in the bottom of the 12th and crashing into Ray Fossey to score that run. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I was thinking, you know, usually the home team gets all sorts of benefits and I'm wondering, were you able to go to the game because you remember the Reds at the time? Did I go to the game? Yeah, the All-Star game that year. Yes, I did. Yeah, I was up in, behind home plate in huh. the upper deck there. And I, it kind of looked funny. I don't know how the announcers, you probably announced games yourself. I don't know how you can tell where the ball's going. <laughs> I think Dick uh-huh. Dietz, if I'm, um, unless this was a different one, uh, Dick Dietz, I think, hit a home run to center field in that game. And it looked to me like it was just a, a pop-up to the infield and all of a sudden bam I was over the center field fence I don't know how the announcers from that perspective you know looking sitting up in the third deck how they call it the play so quick because it's distorted watching which way the ball goes from up there but I guess when you do it all your life you know what's going on but yeah yeah I did go to that game yeah wow so what was it like when when Rose came around third and went charging for home and then knocked the ball out of Fossey's glove and scored the winning run well, yeah, I mean, that, that was Pete Rose. He, actually, I think anybody would have done that. You know, Fossey shouldn't have gotten in front of the plate and blocked it because that's what's going to happen. And it just because an all-star game doesn't make any difference. You know, Pete mm. plays hard. And 
that's what you do when the guy blocks the plate, you run him over. Of course, nobody knew that Fossey was going to have a permanent injury that was going to pretty much ruin his career. It was just, you know, he, he didn't hold on to the ball and Pete scored the run, and, and that was that. We didn't think about Fossey being hurt that bad. It's a shame. He was such a great player. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so interesting hearing you talk about the perspective sitting as a fan, really, in the seats all the way up, what we call the nosebleed seats, but yet you're a player. And um, sort of interesting perspective you related about the, trying to judge the, the depth of um, the, the, the how far a ball was hit, um, like the home run you mentioned. And I'm wondering whether, whether, like in the Crosley field years, did you ever get to see a game as a spectator, like if you had an injury or you just pitched four days in a row and they weren't going to use you that day? Did you get to sit in the stands with like a fan? <laughs> I don't know if that ever happened. Mm. Uh, but you know, I have gone to a few games where I sit in the stands, and obviously it's a totally different perspective you get. And I, I don't know if there ever, ever was a time during my career where I was injured and just went to the game and sat in the stands. But uh, yeah, it's, it's totally it's a lot different than being down on the field. Was was that the only time during your career that you sat in the stands and not, you know, not on the bench? One time we we had an exhibition game against Cleveland, and uh, Clay Carroll and I were are kind of our one-two relief pitchers, mm-hmm. so they weren't going to use us in the game. So we stayed up in the stands behind home plate and watched. And let me see one time and. The minor leagues, I had pitched a lot of games, and I had just pitched in the All-Star game. And when I got back, the uh, the, man, the manager was very happy. He had asked the manager of the All-Star game not to put me in a game because I had pitched so much. Mm. And they did put me in the game, and I, I, I actually gave up the winning run. But anyway, Vern was not happy that I pitched, so he told me, get out of this locker room, go up in the stands and watch a game. You're, you're not going to play today. Mm. So I mean, that's pretty rare. It was pretty rare for me to be sitting in the, in the stands. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I meant to mention also with some of the notable things that happened at Crosley Field during its history that one of them was shortly before the closing of the stadium when, when Hank Aaron and the Braves were in for a series and Aaron hit a ground ball up the middle that was an infield hit and it was his 3,000th career hit. And do you remember where you were? Were you, you were not pitching, I know, at that, at that point, but were you, you know, in the bullpen? Were you on the bench? Did you pay attention to that? Oh, you mean when Aaron got his 3,000th hit? Yes. Is that what you're saying? I, I do not remember. Mm. I mean, I'm sure I've seen a, a couple of instances where guys got really big hits, like their 500th home run or 3,000th hit, but I, I, I just don't remember that. I do remember pitching in Sierra Lake. Usually I didn't, for the big home run right-handers, I didn't have a lot of problem because I was a sinker ball, low, low sinker ball pitcher and I had a big sweeping curve. So mm-hmm. But most of the right-handers, big guys, but Aaron was really tough to pitch against. In fact, I, I can remember one time I, I was with the Cardinals in 73, I think, and we were playing in Atlanta against the Braves, and uh, the mad Hungarian Al Roboski was pitching, mm-hmm. and he got two outs in the ninth, and Aaron was coming up to bat. We were one run ahead, and there was two outs above the ninth in Atlanta, and Aaron was coming up to bat, so Cheney's brought me into the game, and Tim McCarver was catching, I think I, with a 
3-2 count, I threw him eight straight curveballs. <laughs> and I, All right. I wasn't going to give him a fastball. Yeah, yeah, He's such yeah. a good hitter. Yeah. And he kept pulling on foul and pulling on foul, and he finally hit a fly ball to, to left field for the last out of the game. But Aaron was just such a good hitter. It was pretty to watch him swing. Eight, eight straight. I mean, after about the third, he knew what was going to what, what was going to be coming. Till yeah. till he was either retired or got hit. Wow. Interesting. Well, I mean, 1970 was really a you know terrific season for the Reds because even uh, he, I mean, with with the win over the Giants that that I mentioned to close the stadium, I mean, you had a just a really dominant record of 49 wins, 21 losses, opened up a nine game lead over the Dodgers at that point. Won the division, swept the Pirates in the playoffs, made the World Series, and that was, you know, your second World Series within a three-year period, including the, uh, you know, the, the one with the Cardinals. Oh yeah. How did how did like what did you think the team's chances were heading against the Orioles? I mean, both of you, both teams won 100 games plus. Orioles won 108. Pretty. We, we got into a situation toward the end of the year where our starting pitchers were ailing. Uh, I can remember, I think it was that year that Wayne Simpson had won 13 games halfway through the year and he blew out his arm and couldn't pitch. And mm-hmm. Jim Merritt was having problems with his arm and fell it in Maloney. And our, our frontline pitching was just struggling at that point in time with various maladies and injuries and whatever. So it, it wasn't looking too good for, for us. And, you know, it was kind of a pessimistic attitude which is a terrible thing to say, but, you know, when you don't have your best pitching, mm. you know, pitching well, then it's going to be awful hard to beat them. And uh, so, you know, everybody wants to win when you go to the World Series. You just, if you got there, you must be darn good. But like I say, we had some problems with our pitching. It was kind of put us in a handicap position at that point. Right. Well, and, and it didn't help when you had opportunities, and it was Brooks Robinson at third base. You know, winning the oh, yeah. winning the MVP with his glove. You know, went through Brooks. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. that was amazing. Yeah. Well. Yeah, and I, in fact, in that series, I I tell jokes to my buddies around here. They introduce me to somebody, and they say Wayne pitched in the World Series, and I said, Yeah, I gotta. I don't like to blow my horn, but uh, I, I actually hold the World Series record. And they say, Oh. Yeah, there's only been one pitcher in the history of the World Series to hit a grand slam home run, and they said, oh, really? I said, yeah, I hit the pitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that kind of stuff. Yeah, you, you would like to say that you're the one who hit it, but you, Dave McNally's yeah, the one who hit it, right? Yeah, he just, he swung hard, and he put the bat in the right place, and, you know, had gotten, a, I think, Edgebaron out in three pitches, and then McNally was up, and he, he swung over the top of two pitches didn't even come close to hitting him and for two strikes and then I threw two curveballs and just tried to come back with a, another sinker and I got it up in the zone and he just swung hard and it, it went far <laughs> and it was a little embarrassing for me well, what did you think what did you think when you heard the crack of the bat and saw where the ball was going uh, I just couldn't believe it you know, it surprised me that even though it was a good pitch to hit that I had made him look bad on two sinker balls mm-hmm. to start that at bat, and then he, then I threw him another sinker ball. <laughs> I said, "Where did that come from? You're supposed to swing and miss like you did the first two pitches." <laughs> so I wasn't happy. And then, of course, uh, he, they left me in the game, and I forget the 
leadoff hitter for the Royals hit me a ground ball, and I threw it to Lee May. I threw it about 90 miles an hour over to Lee May. who was so mad from the previous mm-hmm. pitch, and, and he, he said, what are you doing that for? I didn't throw the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, I wasn't very happy. He, he knew why he had some mustard on that throw, huh? But I mean, you, you really had some terrific years, those, those those three years with the Reds, right? The full years, you had 69, 70, 70, you led the league with 35 saves. You finished really high in the voting, I think eighth for the Cy Young Award that year for a relief pitcher, that's that's a big deal. And um, you know, the year before you led the league 90, 90 games, appeared in 27 saves. I mean, those were, those were terrific years and um, you know the beginning of a great run by the Reds. Like, did like in 1969, let's say, going into the 69 season, did you did you realize that the team was really building into a caliber team that it became? You mean 69? Yeah, like 69, 70. Like, machine. yeah, like when did it hit yeah, you that the big red machine was really? Machine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was a yeah, most felt like paying money to pitch for the Reds because you knew you were going to get a lot of runs behind you. Mm-hmm. But that, that was quite an amazing collection of talent, yeah. So, I mean, was was there a feeling in spring training either year, either year that, you know, you guys were really were really going to do something special? Uh, it's kind of hard to tell in spring training. Of course, you're always confident and you know you got the talent there. And I, and I can't remember if we had a good spring or a bad spring, but... You know, we knew that team was going to hit, was going to get some runs. You don't know how good your pitching is going to be. And, because, uh, you know, pitching is just, you don't know what you're going to do when you might have a great year or a mediocre year and you just don't know. But when we broke spring training, sure, we were, we were confident we were going to do well, mainly because of the hitting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what did you think about Sparky Anderson? Sparky just, as good as they come. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was an encyclopedia. He just had everything in that head of his, and he knew, he made the right call pretty much every time. And he was fair. He was fair. I actually, the, Dave Bristol was a friend of mine. He was our manager the previous year, mm-hmm. and 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 I, I kind of broke my heart when he got fired. Of course, I held that against Sparky because Sparky was the incoming manager. He had nothing to do with Sparky with uh, Bristol getting fired. But anyway. Uh, I think it was the first game, I forget who we were playing, and I was pitching in the ninth. And I got a couple of guys out, we were one run ahead, and they had a left-hand hitter coming up. And uh, Sparky came out and took me out of the game. And Sparky had a, a rule that, and he told all the pitchers, he said, if I come out there and get you, give me the ball and go back in the dugout. I don't want to hear nothing. Mm. So, okay. So Sparky took me out of the game, I gave him the ball, and I said, thanks for the confidence. Oh, and I, wow. so, so he didn't say anything after the game. He called me in the office. And the left-hander that came in got, got, got the hitter out. We won the game. So after the game, Sparky called me in the office. He said, Wayne, you know my rule. You don't talk to me when when I take the ball from you. I'm going to fine you $35. You know, and back then, that really wasn't a lot of money, but it was. he was just kind of giving me a message not to do that. And I said, well, Sparky, I... I understand what you're saying, but I'm not going to pay you. You'll have to take it out of my check. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't hear anything more about it, but I didn't talk to Sparky anymore. When he came out to the mound, I just gave him the ball. <laughs> really? So did, did, did you get it deducted from your next check? Oh, I don't know. I didn't even pay attention. I was just, yeah. like I say, it was only $35. But uh, but I anyway, I got the message that he was trying to give me. 
That, that, that's kind of ballsy to say to a manager, huh? Yeah, yeah, I guess. <laughs> oh. Well, he, he didn't uh, He didn't take it out on you. He still used you a good deal. No, no, I just, I, I'm sure that it was forgotten as soon as I walked out of the, the room. It, he knew that I got the message, and that's what was important. Mm-hmm. So have you stayed in touch with, with some of those guys, some of your friends from the Reds from all those years back? No, I, I'm not one of those guys that goes to ball games or really keeps track of things. Of course, I see the guys when we have, we either have the Hall of Fame induction in Cincinnati and they bring us some of the guys up there, mm. or they have the uh, Fan Fest, the Reds Fest, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I go up to that. And we, I see the guys then, and, and around here, I... Uh, The, what was his nickname? The Hawk, if I remember? <laughs> yeah. Hawk. yeah. He, he was a, that was a terrific bullpen you guys had, really. Yeah, well, it was kind of surprising when I was with the Cardinals. Well, that was the year of uh, expansion. You could protect 15 guys, then you'd lose one, protect mm-hmm. five more, and lose one mm-hmm. to the expansion team. So something was going to happen. We were playing in the World Series against Detroit in 68, 69 was the expansion year, so something mm-hmm. was going to happen. So it turned out that the Bobby Tolan and I got traded to the Reds for Veda Pinson. And, and I guess I, I, we were right on the bubble, the, uh, the 15th guy, who was going to get protection, who wasn't. So that's the way they did it. They, they brought uh, Pinson or protected him as number 15, and both Bobby and I went over to the Reds. And, uh, and I'm thinking, wow, what are you bringing me over here for? You already got the best relief pitcher in baseball on Clay Carroll because we used to read in the papers about how Clay Carroll was such a good pitcher. And I, so that's how it worked out. And then Clay actually got hurt early in the season with the Reds in 69. And I think Maury Wills spiked him at in his Achilles covering first base. And I, so then I became the, the stopper for the Reds while Clay was healing. And I was doing pretty well, so they kept me at that position. But but Clay, like you said, he, he pitched 71 games, and I pitched 90 one year in 69. So, yeah, we, we and Don Gullett was a, a reliever that year. I think that he was his first year as a reliever with the Reds. And he was awesome. So we did have a pretty good bullpen, yeah. Yeah, Don Gullett was really young when he came up with the Reds. I think it was 1970. He he was uh, Don, Don Gullett. Gullett? Yeah. Oh, he didn't come up in '69 for '70. Yeah. I think yeah, he so. Was really, I mean, he was at least he was a, a heck of a pitcher. Yeah, he at least pitched regularly in '70. That's what that's what I recall. So, were, were you and yeah. were you and Clay Carroll um, close back then? Like, did you talk about? Yeah, we were roommates. Yeah. Did Did, did yeah. you talk about yeah. about facing difficult batters and difficult situations, high pressure situations, how to handle, how to pitch so and so? Yeah. Yeah. I mean. You, Sometimes you, you want to just, you know, you're there for two and a half, three hours at a ball game. You just want to get away from, you know, and you, we're going to have a couple of cocktails, eat dinner or something. And, and 
then, yes, there were, there were definitely times because you're together so often. You talk about situations in the game and what could have been done differently or, you know, we're playing so-and-so tomorrow, how are we going to pitch Clemente in that situation and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, you, you talk about things like that, yeah. Was Were Clemente and Aaron and the particular obvious players who were players you look forward to facing and the challenge of it and you knew that these were these were among the best in the business? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, everybody's human. I mean, nobody's perfect. I, <clears> thank <throat> God I never had pitcher Ted Williams. I wouldn't know how to pitch to him. But some guys like Clemente was so aggressive you could throw him a, what they call a backup slider in on his hands and he, he knew that it was breaking so he'd be going out after the pitch and he'd jam himself a lot and then you get the uh, Oh, Mike Schmidt, Mike, you get ahead of him, you could get him out with a break of ball on the plate outside because he had that big swing. And there are certain guys that had certain courts that were, you know, you, you talk about, you say, well, you got to do this with this guy and don't do this with this guy, etc. So, yeah, yeah, you talk about those things. You know, Wayne, I, I think if, I kind of have the Reds and the Pirates in my mind sort of linked, like connected throughout the 1970s because they were, to me, the strongest teams in the league by by a good bit, consistently strong the whole, from the beginning of the decade to the end of the decade. You know, the Reds won the World Series in 70, the Pirates won in 79, and that was a decade. And in between, the Reds were in four World Series. They were in the playoffs six times total. I mean, that was a terrific rivalry that, that went, you know, they're, they're not all that far apart geographically. I mean, terrific rivalry, and you were there from really the beginning, because 1970 played each other in the, the playoffs. Yeah, yeah, they pirates. They were actually pretty similar to the to the Reds because they had such a great hitting team. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, was it Fort St. Hilda? Was that the name of the park that Pirates played in before they went to Three Rivers? Exactly. Anyway, yeah, we used to go in there, and when the Pirates were, of course, there's nobody in the stands when when you're having batting practice. But we would purposely go down and go out and watch them take batting practice because. You know, you got Sergeant Parker and some of these guys that just absolutely ripped the ball all over. And it made an echo because there was nobody in the stands. Mm-hmm. And I, that was just gave you chill bumps listening to them hit the ball and watching where it went. Of course, that probably wasn't a good thing to do with knowing you had to pitch to them later. But anyway, it was pretty spectacular watching them take batting practice. In 1973, you were with the Yankees for part of the season. Yeah. And at the, end, at the end of the 73 season, the Yankees closed down Yankee Stadium. It went, it went through two years' worth of renovations, and it opened up really really almost a different ballpark with the same structure, but the inside was, was very changed. And I was thinking, yeah. I was wondering, you know, it's kind of interesting that within just a few years, you were on the home team with the Reds in 70, the last game at Crosley, home team with the Yankees in 73, the last game at that great... Stadium and actually, actually, I was the last pitcher for the Yankees. I wasn't the last pitcher in the stadium because uh, that, that we had to hit in the ninth inning. But I was the last pitcher for the Yankees before they renovated the stadium. Right, right, and and they were playing the Tigers, and everybody went on the field after the game, and it was it was a big mess. And and did, did you did you have that? Of course, you were with the Yankees a much shorter time, but did you have that in your mind as you? You know, did you have this historic nature of that stadium and of that game in your mind at that time? You know, about the uh, 
history of Yankee Stadium and stuff like that. Is that what you mean? Yes, yeah, like, like yeah. Did, did you have did you have in mind the, the historic feel that you were playing in with with the Yankees at the time, and and that it wasn't going to be there? Again? I, I didn't get obviously. I didn't get the same feeling I did when they when they closed Crosley Field, mm-hmm. but. Uh, but still, you know, when you go to Yankee Stadium, you go out to center field and you look at the monuments, you touch the monuments, and you, you look around because all the history of, of what happened in New York and, and New York being the big, biggest city in the world at that time, it, they get the most publicity. So you, you know so much about the park and what was done there with Ruth and Gehrig and DiMaggio. And so you're pretty much enough of being in that stadium. But as far as renovating it, it, it really didn't mean a lot to me. Did you uh, did, did you take many walks to the monuments before a game and read the plaques and take in the historic um, nature of those people? Yeah, yeah, same, yeah, yeah. Everybody does that. You got to go out and look at the monuments and the plaques and stuff. And I was wondering, after your baseball career ended, what lines of work you were in and where in the country okay. you were living, what your life has been like as just as a person, not as an athlete, since then. Yeah, it was, I, I didn't have a college degree, and if I would have had it, it would have been a, because I did go to college for a few years, physical education, I absolutely did not want to teach, that usually is what you do with a physical education de- degree, mm-hmm. and I, so I thought, I don't know, I just kind of get into retail or something, so I went around to some sporting goods stores, and I, I finally hooked up with uh, Oshman Sporting Goods, and uh, I'm not proud to admit, but I started working for them for three dollars and fifty cents an hour. Hmm. <laughs> you got to start somewhere, mm-hmm. and I ate a lot of hot dogs. <laughs> and then uh, I stayed with them, and eventually became a, a manager and traveled around the country to a few places: hmm. New Orleans and Miami, and and uh, Clearwater, Florida. And, and then I uh, hooked up with a fellow that was my boss with Oshman's, and and he. Uh, Kind of all of us and fellows in Orlando that had a, they were starting a boat dealership. So mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about boats, but anyway, he got me trained to be a finance manager, you know, hook you up with a boat line if you needed one. So I stayed with them for about seven years. And then I, actually, I, I hooked up with some guys and we started our own billiard league. We had like 80 teams around the area here, and we'd go out to Las Vegas and play in the finals of the amateur handicap billiard leagues, and I did that for quite a while and didn't hardly make any money at that. So then I got to a point where I had to start thinking about my Social Security because I hadn't fulfilled my quarters that I needed to get Social Security, so I went to work for a a shoe store. Hmm. And and that was a Red Wing shoe boots we made real high quality and hmm. stayed with them for about seven or eight years and then I get up into where I was pretty much 70 years old and I was collecting my pension and things were going pretty well so I just said uh, I'm going to go play golf I'm, I'm done <laughs> so that's pretty much what's happened I, I I played golf quite a bit I joined a country club and I'm near Orlando Winter Springs Florida and, and it's nice here of course you get rainstorms but that's Florida but everybody has weather problems, but I love it here. It's nice and quiet, and I'm recently married. I, 
I lost my wife a few few years ago to cancer, and I got married two years ago to a wonderful lady. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're together here. She has a house on the beach, and I have a house in Winter Springs, so we get along fine, and everything's going fine. Well, that's really that's really really nice to hear. Um, nice to hear that things turn out well for you. Well, what did you do in the? What was your um, job in the sporting goods business? Uh, I was a manager. Of the, I started out as a assistant manager. Mm. The soft lines, the, you know, the garments and stuff, and just so I could get trained on that. And of course, when you become manager, you got to handle all the whole store as far as the merchandise. But you know, man, typical manager duties, you assign the workstations for everybody. And you know, I usually had about uh, maybe a dozen employees, and the stores were anywhere from 10,000 to 30 square feet. And, and, and I would be a manager over just one particular store. I wasn't a district manager over several. And, and it just, just the duties, you know, dealing with the public and ordering stuff and, you know, setting your schedules and handling your people that work for you. And, and it, it was kind of a shock. I had never done anything like that before, but I, I learned how to do it and did okay with it. And, and I went to some nice cities and had a pretty good career with it. And where where was that base? Where were you living at that time? Where was I living at that time? Mm-hmm. I, I was in Orlando originally because that's where I was living when I was playing baseball or the Orlando area. And then my first store, they put me in Clearwater, Florida. Then next store, they moved me out to New Orleans. Next door was Dallas. Next door was Miami. And then finally I got transferred up here to Orlando and I went to work for the boat dealership in, in uh, Orlando and I've been, been here ever since. That's really interesting. I know that you're you're from the Northeast though. You're from Springfield, Mass, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still have some family up there. My, I got a daughter up there. I just lost my sister who lived up there in the Springfield area, Huntington actually, which is a real small town about 20 miles from Springfield, but Western Mass, yeah. So how, how, does, how does a boy from the town that basketball was invented, how does a boy like you get turned on to baseball and not basketball? <laughs> you know, you only play, like in high school, we play 14 baseball games. In Florida, they're probably playing 60 or 70 in high school. Mm-hmm. And they got these all these travel leagues. And so obviously, I didn't play a lot of baseball, but I always was interested in it. And, and, and I... You know, in the wintertime, I'd throw snowballs. And, I, and in the summertime, I'd throw, I shouldn't say this, but I'd throw rocks at streetlights and break them and the <laughs> signs and stuff like that. I always was throwing something. And I, I just I was lucky enough to, to have the talent to go, you know, get, get with a pretty good school and get scouted. And even though it's from New England, you don't get the opportunities that you get in a warmer climates, you know, like Texas and California and Florida. But uh, I guess a scout saw what he liked in me, and I signed with the Cardinals. When, when I was 21 years old, I was in college, and I had lost my mom to a car accident shortly before that, so I was ready to leave college and start playing ball. So I signed when I was 21 with the Cardinals. Wow, wow. Well, Wayne Granger, thank you very, very much for appearing on, on the program on Hillel Cutler's ABC's Athletics Beyond Coronavirus. I hope that you, uh, that we all can put coronavirus behind us and 
hope that you and your family stay healthy. Appreciate you calling. It was fun talking to you and bringing back some memories for me. Thank you.